Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's a chilly WIP morning. It's going to be into the middle 60s by the end of the day. Lots of rain. So no matter where you go, take 94 WIP and your umbrella with you. You'll have good conversation, always good talk, and you'll be dry as well. Halloween is this Tuesday, a time for scary things. And to be in preparation for Halloween, I thought about what things scare me. And what scares me most is racism. And racism is part of what we're going to talk about this morning here on Conversation as I welcome my first guest, Rizma Menachem. I hope I didn't murder his name. His new, <laughs> book, his new book, My Grandmother's Hands, Radicalizing Tra- Radicalized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Mind, Our Hearts and Bodies. Thank you, Rizma. Good morning. Thank you. My pleasure. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm fine. Um, Good. What are you talking about in the book? It's got a title that's real confusing. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, it, yeah. Thank you for having me. By the way, um, the the term uh, the, the the title of the book is called racialized trauma. So it's sure. basically talking about how trauma, um, how race is a uh, traumatizing a traumatizing factor in our lives and about how it gets passed down through the generations and how we have, uh, how we need to begin to address that trauma as opposed to just thinking about it or just talking about it, that we actually have to understand that trauma actually is something that happens to the body. And so um, it's, it's my first attempt to begin to help us begin to heal through some of, uh, through some of what's been passed down um, over the years. All right, but in the body, I think of that old song from the musical South Pacific, you've got to be taught to hate to fear, you've got to be carefully taught. And this is yeah. something else. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 so, so so teaching can happen on a number of different levels, right? So teaching doesn't just happen because somebody stands up in front of a classroom and and uh, you know, uh, draws something out or somebody tells you what to do, you also get taught by the experience that you have with another person's uh, body and with their, with their nervous system, by what my mom constricts against or what my mom is open to or what my father constricts against or what they're open to or what they have been uh, taught that now looks to them like personality. Um, so, so having a trauma response is, if, if my body is brutalized and there's never any healing from that brutalization, what happens is, is that by the time I have children, they pick that up as personality or as culture. And so teaching is not just about the brain. It is also about the body, what the body uses to protect itself over time. And so people aren't just taught in a logical way. They're also taught through the body. Okay, but what does grandmother's hands in the title have to do with it all? Great, great question. So my grandmother, um, who, who uh, actually was the, uh, the hub of our family, um, my grandmother, um, during a particular story I talked talk to you about in the book, is that my grandmother had these hands that were really kind of thick. And she wasn't a big woman, but she had hands that were bigger than her you know, than you would think would be on her body. And 
um, her hands, her, her fingers were thick, and the back of her hands and the palms of her fingers were thick. And one day I was rubbing her hands when I was young, and I was comparing her hands to my hands, and my hands are very thin. And so I just asked her, you know, Grandma, why are your hands so thin? My grandmother, without missing a beat, just said, oh, boy, that's some picking cotton. And just the way that she said it, you know, rang the, the pain of that, 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 that rang in her throat. And as I, as, as I took that in, it just felt like it was constriction. And so I was confused, obviously, because I had never seen cotton or pick cotton. And she said, you ever seen a cotton plant? And I said, no. She said, well, a cotton plant has these burrs in it. And so when you reach your hand, and she said, I started sharecropping when I was four, when my father was a sharecropper. And so I had to start picking cotton when I was four. And we didn't, you know, I didn't have any gloves. So it would rip my hands up. And so that that pain and that brutality of, of that being a four-year-old and having your hands ripped up like that, that idea stuck with me until I began to write my book. And so how pain gets carried over and how even all of those years later I could hear the pain in her voice when she would talk about it and how that carried along and then what did that do in terms of her ability to trust, her ability to what did how, what effect did that trauma and that stress have on her nervous system, have on her health, have on her decision making, all of those different types of things. And so that's what the book was about. Is what you're talking about though then, given your grandmother's story, the pain of memory or is it something else? It's the pain it, it well memory is definitely a component of it, but it's also the pain of of, of how the environment can shape uh, can can shape basically how our how the gene expression in our body is called epigenetics. It's about, it's about how the how um, the body remembers in order to protect you. So it's not even as much about you know somebody saying something to me. It's really about how the body uh, kind of changes the 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 gene expression to begin to create an environment by which I don't have to say to my children that your body's in danger. There's always, there, there, there is this kind of gene expression that moves in and begins to protect me, and, and that gets passed down. So it's not just memory in the head. It's also memory in the body. It's a survival response. Trauma is about protection, not, not, uh, not defect. It's about protect. Is what you're talking about then basically what many black Americans are saying they experience at the hands of white America? Say that, say that question one more time. Is what no, you're no, talking no. about then what many African Americans are saying they experience at the hands of white America? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that this idea that, I mean, all it takes – I mean, so, so when I talk about trauma and I talk about racialized trauma, in the book, one of the things I also talk about is that um, the white body, when we, when we look at the white body and we talk about what the white body, especially in, in America, has experienced, um, I believe we have to go back all the way to um, the, the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages. I mean, there is a particular reason why it's called the Dark Ages, and it's not because it was a particularly good time for white bodies. 
and I think that the that the white body, um, uh, that 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 powerful white bodies, um, actually broke and raped and brutalized less powerful white bodies for over a thousand years during the Middle Ages, right? And 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 took land and 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 and, and enslaved and committed genocide and all that different types of and took their language. I believe that that those types of things were perfected uh, on on white bodies before they got here. That powerful white bodies did this to less powerful white bodies. That happened for a thousand years, five hundred A.D. to about fifteen hundred A.D. In fourteen ninety two, that brutalized white body came here, and then began to began to deal with um, other bodies in that same way. The, the, the way that their bodies had been brutalized, began to deal with other bodies that same way and created a whole system of, of, of white supremacy and white body supremacy to begin to try and get around that. So when I talk about things like memory and stuff like that, I'm talking about how that stuff gets passed down as a protective measure. So yes, when we talk about what, what black people uh, say at the hands of a white body supremacy system, that's what they're talking about. They're saying that this stuff has not stopped and the brutality continues. And and all bodies, when they are brutalized, have a tendency to rebel and push back against that brutalization, including white bodies. And so and so, uh, part of my book is to kind of help to uh, begin to explain what has happened to us and help us begin to maybe develop some strategies to begin to heal it. Okay, I think I'm following you, but to take, okay. it a, it's, to take it a step further, when we look at subsets of white America, yeah. Jewish folks, vic- yeah. many, victim, yeah. many victims of the pogroms of Eastern Europe and Russia, Absolutely. victims yeah. of the Holocaust, yeah. very brutalized people, the Irish, yeah. Um, yeah. when the Irish came to America, riots, yeah. anti, anti-Irish riots. Another yeah. example right there, brutalized. Absolutely. And Absolutely. are you saying that those people who were brutalized in those specific circumstances are more likely to pass on brutalization to other people? Absolutely. I believe hurt people hurt people. And here, here's the other piece, that when you talk about the Jewish, uh, uh, about uh, Jewish people, there's a lot of research that's out right now. Like a lot, there's a lot of research around epigenetics and how the the Holocaust has had specific health concerns, has created specific health concerns, not just on the people who experienced the programs and 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 the Holocaust, but also on their children. There, there there's a lot of research coming out now suggesting that some of the health concerns, some of the anxiety issues, some of the things that that uh, that Jewish people and their, and, and their children have experienced has been passed down from some of that brutality and so, from some of that experience. When you look at Irish people, Irish people, so, so white, white the, the idea of whiteness is malleable. Irish people were not, necess, were not considered white people for a very long time. But but white body supremacy, when I say that, what I mean is that the white body is the standard by which all other bodies, humanity, shall be measured. And so 
during the times, especially during uh, the, 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 the 17th century, during the times where uh, you would have white indentured servants that would push against more powerful uh, white bodies and say, you know, we will not be treated this way, and they would do it alongside of, of, of Africans and, 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 and other people. The, the 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 powerful white bodies decided, and, and the owners and the owners of the plantations, the owners of the plants in the north, all that different type of stuff decided that one of the things that they needed to do is make sure that that uh, connection was severed. So what they did was was in the, around the 17th century is say, okay, you're no longer this or that. You're no longer English. You're no longer Dutch. You're no longer Portuguese. You are now white. And in that, the supremacy of the white body as a way to deal with the dissonance that existed between powerful white bodies and less powerful white bodies, that supremacy got elevated. And so now all you had to do was be born white, and that whiteness became malleable over time. So more and more people who did not originally start off being white became white. And so that's one of the ways that so when I look at the Irish people, when I look at Jewish people, yes, they have experienced those things, and at the same time, especially now, they are considered white. That is a malleable thing, and that in that there was a level of supremacy that was that was uh, that was kind of encoded in that in that mood. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Risma Menachem, his new book. <laughs> Sorry about that if I'm murdering the name. That's all right, brother. Okay. That's all right. My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. So how does this become internalized in the body? What happens? Yeah. Because, because because trauma in and of itself, when, when people have a trauma response, it's about protecting itself from real or perceived and further damage. So all it takes is for somebody to be traumatized is for something to happen to the body that's too much, too fast, too soon, or happens too long. That's all it takes. So 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 if 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 somebody brutalizes me as an individual. Then over time, and that and that brutalization gets continued, and there is no reprieve, or there is no person that helps me, that helps me, that soothes me, or helps me through it. Over time, I begin to develop strategies and ways to begin to 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 thwart the amount of damage that's been done to me. So if I can't fight this thing, and I can't flee from this thing, the next thing that I will do is to freeze or dissociate from this thing. So when my body is brutalized, I won't be in my body when it happens. People have this experience when they've had accidents or have had a very difficult situation um, in which they have they can't be present in their bodies. So if that happens to an individual, what happens when it happens to a group of people, right? And so what I believe is that over time, trauma, time can detextualize trauma. So over time, if something happens to me right now, and then tomorrow I'm having a particular behavior, a particular thought, or attributing a particular meaning to something, time 
um, if, 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 if I'm starting to have a different way of, of dealing with something, I would say, oh, that's because that happened to me yesterday. But if I'm five years out or ten years out, it's harder for me if I don't remember it. It's harder for me to then say, oh, because I'm having I'm, – I'm, I'm more quick-tempered or I'm sleeping all the time or I'm trying to move away from something or I have a reflexive response to something, it's harder for me to attribute it to that thing that happened to me 10 years ago. So what we have a tendency to do is then internalize that. And then when other people come into our lives, that internalization to them looks like personality as, as an individual or can look like a culture if that same strategy is used across a large group of people. Is this one potential explanation for addiction, especially in minority communities? Well, not just in minority communities. People get addicted to all different types of things. But, yes, this is one of the – because what happens is is that when you have this level of trauma that gets unaddressed and unacknowledged, what can happen is that people will find ways to begin to manage the energy of it in the body. So it's not just the thought that happened, or, uh, but, but, but it may show up in different types of urging. It may show up in different types of, of leanings, right? And so if we, don't, if we don't begin to look at how trauma affects the body, those urgings and leanings only get dealt with with regard to um, uh, how we deal with something cognitively. Um, and then what ends up happening is that we genuflect, not we genuflect, but we then kind of uh, uh, make the cognitive pieces almost like about, how, about willpower. And when, we, when it comes to addiction, that's not what it's about. It's about how the body may have conditioned itself to begin to thwart some of the energy or deal with some of the energy that's fueling the addiction. And so uh, it's my belief that when it, comes to a, when it comes to addictions, we have to begin to look at um, – we have to begin to look at trauma. It's not the end all, it's not the panacea, but we have to begin to at least uh, uh, ask what happened to the person as opposed to what's wrong with the person, because that's what we do a lot um, when, we, when, we, when we talk about either addictions or, or any other type of, 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 uh, uh, of social thing that pops up. You know, there's a big study that has come out um, and for the last couple of years called the ACEs study. And the ACEs study actually uh, adverse childhood uh, experiences and basically what they did was followed people for a long period of time and really looked at, you know, when there's four or more traumatic things that happen to people, how that actually leads to an earlier death than people who did not have adverse childhood experiences like that. And so what happens is, is that when a person has uh, adverse childhood experiences, then they, uh, they begin to try and figure out ways to, to manage or uh, ameliorate those experiences, and then they, they uh, adopt, um, they adopt uh, 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 more social uh, high-risk behaviors, that may lead to alcohol or addiction abuse. That may lead to less quality of life, which leads to a uh, uh, early death. And so this trauma stuff affects all of those things and also affects the physical body 
of people. And so people began to try and figure out how do they get away from some of that energy that, that they feel um, they don't have any words for. So what do we do? Do we put everybody in therapy? Um, <laughs> no, I think what we have to do is, we, is, is that won't work. I think that's what that, that's kind of what we well, some of what we've tried. But I think what has to happen is that one of the things I think we have to do is we have to start to help people reclaim um, some of the things that may have helped us or helped our people um, um, uh, have space by which these things can be healed. So some, like if you if you take the Jewish if you take Jewish people, one of the things that um, that uh, I'm always quick to say Jewish people or Native people or or Native American people, uh, you know, who I always want to acknowledge and give respect to and and and, and say that, you know, our the, the the very ground that we're all other people were here first. And a lot of times we don't acknowledge that and acknowledge the genocide that happened with Native American people. And so that 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 trauma, that genocide. Um, uh, happened to a people. It didn't just happen to an individual person. And so what has to happen is that we have to help people uh, begin to reclaim some of those uh, maybe cultural strategies or social strategies that allowed us to take to begin to take care of each other and heal each other and reclaim those things that helped us uh, to survive some of those pieces. And so for me, it is not just about sending or people coming to my office Right, as a therapist, you know, um, having people come to my office is what we do. We have to actually help people as therapists um, understand what are the things that they that we can show them or teach them that they can teach each other, um, that they can reclaim, so people don't have to keep coming to my office. That they can actually heal and begin to uh, deal with this issue of, of, of white body supremacy and begin to develop strategies um, and acknowledge it, first of all, but to develop strategies to heal from it. So it is my, it's not my contention that we, we have to have, you know, a million more therapists. It's my contention that we are all have a degree of healing um, that we can do with one another, um, and we and we got to start learning how to do it. But then how does all of this explain the white supremacists of Charlottesville, for example. Mm, mm. Scary people. Well, yeah, yeah, scary people. But here's, here's, here's my take on that. So my take on the Charlottesville piece is that um, you, have, you have this kind of what I believe, what I call kind of everyday supremacy. It is the idea that, there are, that the white body is the standard and that everything must compare to that white body. And then you have the Charlottesville people. You have the people who are the white supremacists. Um, and then you have people that I call kind of allies. And then the next uh, group is people that I call kind of justice leaders, white justice leaders, people who believe that, that there has to be a cultural change, a cultural way of, that white people must begin to, to look at this piece. So when I talk about white body supremacy, I talk about it on a continuum and that the Charlottesville people are only allowed to be who they are because everyday white people don't come out of their doors, don't come out of their rooms, don't come out of their houses to meet that, that threat, right? 
Um, and so, and so, until that changes, until the trauma of of what I call the trauma of silence in the white community begins to change, um, uh, you will have many more Charlottesvilles because we have a we have a, a a government now that seems to be supporting and seems to be giving cover for that manifestation, the Charlottesville manifestation, to now come out and be and bear its teeth. It's never it's always been there. But but now people are starting to see and now people are surprised about it. Um, well, well let me say this majority, many people in the white community are surprised about it. People of color and indigenous people are not surprised about it because we've had a different history. Our, we, we cannot afford to be surprised about it because our very survival has been uh, dependent on us understanding exactly what is going on in this country. What you're saying is for the minority community, any white person is suspect because he could be a Charlottesville type. No, what, I'm, what, what I am saying is that white, white party supremacy does not, does not give, does not really, does not really care um, uh, whether or not um, um, you, you feel like, uh, you know, the Charlottesville people are um, uh, an aberration. That the white body is 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 the supreme standard, and that what happens is is that if white other white bodies don't confront that, it will allow it will be allowed just by omission. It will be allowed to metastasize and 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 then show up on your doorstep. That is not just about it's not about being suspect. Um, although that can be a piece of it, don't, don't get me wrong. It really is about that, that, that if we're going to end white supremacy, white body supremacy, and white skin privilege, if we're going to end that, it's going to be because masses of white people um, begin to confront this within their own communities um, and, uh, rather than um, people of color um, conf- uh, uh, confronting it. Um, because we are because we are being um, damaged by it. It's a different it's a different way of getting at this the, this idea of Charlottesville. It's not just about uh, uh, people of color, indigenous people uh, dealing with it. It's also about how do white people begin to develop a way of dealing with it. Not small groups of white people, but 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 masses of white people beginning to heal from the silence. I believe that silence is a trauma response in this country for white people. It is why when we begin, all that has to happen is for a black body to just kneel in protest. And you, you see this, you see uh, uh, um, uh, white people begin, or not all white people, but you, you see masses of white people begin to come out and, and have this energy that doesn't seem like it would be, it should be at that level of energy for something as um, as benign as a silent protest, and so to me that's a whole continuum. When you talk about Charlottesville and the response to kneeling and um, and all that different type of stuff, that's a continuum for me. It's not just episodes. And I'd like to say thank you to Resma. Maybe I got it right this time. Manakam. You got it right that time. Yes. Okay. Resma Menachem, author of My Grandmother's Hands.
an important new book that we all need to think about. Thank you, Resma. Thank you so much. Resma.com, R-E-S-M-A-A.com. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And it's another edition of Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon, the WIP Time, 7628. We'll be back in just a bit.